Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Christocentric, based out of our study on the book of Philippians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. We're in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. We'll start in verse 12 through 18. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Father, speak to us this morning as we study your word. We believe it's holy, infallible, inspired. God, guard my lips. Anoint this time, we pray. Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, cut us, convict us, encourage us. We love you, we trust you, we give ourselves fully to the obedience of your word, God. Speak, we pray. Speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, somebody say amen. Amen, amen. Some say that Martin Luther is the most written about man in history. Um, next to Jesus. Martin Luther has this um, huge personality. He's like very dogmatic and bit brash at times. I was with a group of friends at a lecture on the life of Luther celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And the lecturer was a professor, I think at Kent State. Um, and he was brilliant and informative, very informative. And um, at one point in the lecture... Uh, he was telling us all about Luther, and Luther had a bit of a personality. And at one point, he told us that Luther's favorite uh, quote, one of the, Luther's favorite things to say, and I'm, I'm quoting because this is slightly inappropriate, y'all. His favorite thing to say was, um, the Pope was nothing more than a donkey farting on ice. And all the intellectuals in the crowd were very offended, and I was doing my best not to totally laugh out loud with my middle school humor. And this week as I was uh, browsing articles on Luther, I was trying to find a particular part of his life. Um, I found a website called the Lutheran Insulter, and there was a button that you could click, and when you click the button, it insulted you with a quote from Luther. And so I wrote a few down for you because I thought you would want to know. Um, the first thing it told me is that it says, you are dumber than a seraphian frogs and fishes. The next thing it said when I clicked it is, you are such outrageous, shameless blockheads. And again, I clicked it and it said, you people are more stupid than a block of wood. Luther, on the one hand, was blunt, bold, harsh. And on the other hand, was like very introspective, sensitive even. Um, In his years as a monk, he wore out the confessional. He was in the confessional nonstop confessing all of his sins, so much so that um, the others at the monastery were so tired of listening to Luther's confessions that many say that um, he was encouraged to pursue his doctorate and to teach the book of Romans um, so that maybe in Jesus' name it would occupy his mind. He would quit coming to the confessional. He wrestled with bouts of depression, seasons of discouragement and disappointment. And um, the Diet of Worms, you remember, um, was the moment where he faced off with the Roman church and the the government. um, And he was told that he must recant his views. 
the, the views that he presented, presented in the 95 Thesis. Remember primarily that the papacy was leading the church in a way that was anti-biblical. Um, and so Luther was promised safety as he came to the Diet of Worms. Um, he was told that he would not um, be murdered, as heretics often were. And he stood before the government officials and a um, representative from Rome. The Pope sent a representative to hear at the Diet of Worms. Um, the, the representative said to the Pope that the crowds loved Luther. The common people loved Luther. They pressed in to see Luther as he made his way to Worms. They, priests were grabbing his clothes, wanting to touch him. Um, and the, the Pope's representative told him that, told the Pope that nine out of ten people in the crowd shouted, Long live Luther. And the tenth shouted, Death to the Pope. But the church and the state were opposed to him, and he was asked to recant his views. They had some of his writings, his books laid out, and they told Luther that he must recant. And you remember, this is where we get that famous quote from Luther. He responds, Here I stand, I can do no other. Here I stand, I could do no other meant that he. Um, rested fully on the authority of Scripture, and if the council could show him from Scripture that he was wrong, he would gladly repent, and if not, he would continue to rest on the authority of Scripture. And so the council was going to take a vote, and most assumed that this vote would lead to Luther being handed over um, to the Pope's representatives and being led to Rome, where Luther would eventually be condemned as a heretic and be murdered. So as Luther awaits the vote, he um, is anxious, nervous, and come to find out um, the the council needed unanimity. They all needed to vote against Luther, but there was they did not have unanimity in the vote. And so he was allowed to return home to Wittenberg. Um, but on his way to Wittenberg, um, Frederick the Wise, who was one person on the council who voted that Luther should not be handed over to be condemned as a heretic, um, Frederick the Wise had Luther kidnapped and taken to a castle called Wartburg, to be kept in hiding. This is a strange season in Luther's life. He was in this castle for over a year, and no one knew where he was. He was kidnapped, brought to it. No one knew where he was, and no one in the castle knew who he was. He grew out his hair and his beard, and he was called Knight George, and he was kept in a room where they often kept knights, especially if a knight was being punished for something. Um, it's, it was kind of a little jail. And so Luther, for a year, lives in Wartburg um, in this castle, and everyone thinks he's a knight, and they call him Knight George. Now, you can, you can visit Wartburg today, um, and you can still um, see the room where Luther stayed. You could visit, um, and you could take me with you. You could pay for all my meals, and you could... Spoil me, that would be very nice of you. You're such the good people. Um, and in, in, in Luther's room, there is a, um, there's an ink stain on the wall. And the legend goes that during this time, Luther was battling bouts of depression, bouts of anxiety. Luther said that he wrestled with demonic warfare in the middle of the night. And he said that oftentimes he was wrestling with the enemy and he would pray and he would sing hymns. But there's this legend that one night Satan appears to Luther and Luther picks up his inkwell, which was like the thing he dipped his writing utensil in, picked up his inkwell and threw it at the devil. And it splashed across the wall. Um, the only problem with still being able to see this ink stain on the wall is that 
for some reason, the ink keeps getting freshened up. It's new ink every day. Um, not every day, but, but they did test the ink, and it's not original. Um, and the story is uh, fabricated. But Luther did say that. He said that he threw his inkwell at the devil. And what most likely what he meant by that was that he, he engaged in spiritual warfare as he wrote. He pinned his doctrine and his theology. Um, and first in this season, um, when Luther was kept in this castle alone, and, and if you know anything about Luther, you know that he was a very busy man, this busy, very, very smart, obviously witty man. He kept himself busy. And can you imagine keeping yourself busy and then being locked in a room by yourself for over a year? Some of you are like, I retired. I know what that's like. Um, you're busy, and then all of a sudden everything stops. And he wrote to a friend, and he said, I feel lazy and full, lazy and fat. He left leadership to a 24-year-old named Philip, and he wrote to Philip, worried that this may look like he was quitting on the Reformation, or his hiding may be an act of cowardice, um, but that he was praying that somehow God would be glorified through his exile. He called this his exile, and he liked to talk of it as John's time on the Isle of Patmos. Um, and, and so he wrote saying, I'm sure everyone thinks that I'm a coward and that I'm running, but I feel like somehow God is going to use this time for his glory. And so Luther was alone, unknown, and all he had with him, he grabbed before he got um, snatched, was a, a Greek New Testament and a Hebrew Old Testament. And in this time in, in Wartburg, in his captivity, under demonic attack, he eventually began to work and to write, and he translates the entire New Testament into German um, from the Greek, and this was a huge accomplishment because no one had access to the New Testament in German. They only had it in Latin, which the Catholic Church wanted to keep it that way. And the convenient thing is that nobody could read Latin. Um, and so Luther eventually takes this time of captivity and and begins to write. And he translates the whole New Testament. He also writes in Wartburg his famous hymn, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which became the mantra, kind of the like theme song of the Protestant Reformation, and in hindsight, what looked like a season of captivity and what felt like a season of extreme demonic attack was actually a season of productivity, because maybe even God-ordained as he wrote. What on the surface seemed to be a season of absolute waste, failure, complacency, and God became a fruitful, productive season that would cause every German to be able to read the scriptures. Germany now has the scriptures. When he was left alone, locked up, with every reason to wallow in his own misery, it's as if he realizes in some moment, as if he catches the perspective of heaven and goes, wait, I have enough time now to translate the scriptures. And he offers this most mundane, boring, agonizing season. It's like he puts it on the altar before God and God's fire consumes it. And now again, Germany is filled with the revelation of the New Testament. In God, hear me, in God, seasons that seem utterly useless, moments when you feel like a total failure, when everyone around you says you are finished, in God, those seasons of wilderness can begin to flow with rivers of living water.
lock Luther up. Demonic attack, people trying to kill him, murder him. At one point, there is a bounty put on his head. Lock him up, he'll be forced to hide. And as Luther is locked up, rather than sulk, he translates the entire New Testament. This morning, as we continue to read from Philippians chapter 1, we will find Paul in exile. He'll be in prison. Paul is adored by many, and he's abhorred by many. We know, too, that Paul is a rather thoughtful person. It's likely that the enemy attempted to assault his thought life. Later in the chapter, we'll read next week that Paul is reflecting on life and death to live as Christ and to die as gain. Which to choose? I don't know. This kind of extreme introspective state that Paul finds himself in as he sits in prison. Paul, too, was a busy man, you know. A traveling man, someone who was always on the go, and now all of a sudden he's locked up in chains. But as we read this morning, we'll find Paul with a confidence in God's will to make him fruitful, even when it seems like hell is prevailed against him. We'll find Paul not defeated by the fact that he is tied up in chains, but sure that God is going to be glorified through this trial. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that to chain an apostle is like tying a pianist's hands behind his back. You realize that the word apostle means sent one. It means traveling one, one who carries the message. The gospel being spread by the apostle being changed is paradoxical. Oxymoronic. The idea that as the apostle puts his hands in chains as God's sent one is now bound in a little prison cell. The idea that somehow God can still make the gospel be advanced in the earth as the sent one is chained is a paradoxical truth. But Paul says, bind me up and the word of God is not bound. Bind me up and I am convinced that God will somehow use this season for his glory. Satan thinks what we'll do is we will chain up the apostle. He will no longer be allowed to go anywhere. He will have to sit his happy behind still. And Paul says, you just watch how God will use even this to bring his gospel to the community. Here Paul spends months in prison, yet is confident that through this imprisonment, God will be glorified and the gospel will be advanced. That's a strange conviction, um, but one that we would do well to learn from. Let's read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Paul writes to the Philippian church, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, what has happened to Paul? He's sitting in jail. That what has happened to me this season is actually serving to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So here we find the apostle bound in chains, and again, Paul is a traveling man, okay? He's been everywhere, man. He's a church planner. 
His life's mission, his sense of personal work and identity is wrapped up in this calling of going town to town and planting churches and preaching the gospel and engaging in philosophical debate and proving that that Christ rose from the dead, testifying to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of every messianic prophecy. Paul's life and his work is bound up in traveling city to city and preaching this gospel. So naturally, the Philippian church is left to ask this question. If the apostle is bound, if he is in chains, has God's work been hindered? Has the enemy prevailed? If the apostle has chains around his hands, has the enemy prevailed? God's plan to the beginning was to send out apostles with the message. Paul says in 2 Timothy verse 2-9, he says, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. And in this opening to the body of the letter to the Philippi, we learn an immense amount of information about Paul's heart posture, his theology, his conviction. Now, I may be projecting my own personal struggles on Paul, but I imagine as he sat his happy behind down in prison, I imagine he wrestled with thoughts like, is this the end? Am I finished? Will I ever preach the gospel again? Have I, has the fire within me, has my ministry been quenched? Am I done? I don't think Paul was exempt from feeling disappointment. Would he ever travel again? Would he ever proclaim the gospel again? Yet our text, our passage that we read this morning, makes it very plain that Paul is convinced that even in chains, his life is used to advance the gospel. Paul, I think, reflects on the theology of Joseph, where Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God will use for good. And in God, even my darkest seasons become seasons of light. Even my driest times become seasons of fruitfulness. In God, even when it seems I'm crushed, I actually just leak the power of the Spirit. When my life is lived in God, even when the enemy thinks he has me pinned down, cornered, finished, I prevail. I will be used. Think about the fact that even the cross of Christ for a moment looked like the plans of the enemy would prevail. For a moment, it looked as if the Son of God was defeated. For a moment, it looked as if the Pharisees and the religious leaders had finally shut his mouth. For a moment, they mock him and say, call on God. Let's see the heavens rent and the angels come down and deliver you for a moment it looked like hell got him but even that was the plan of God and when Jesus stepped out of the grave it was very clear that even this dark moment was actually a moment of extreme victory even when Satan thought he had Jesus by the tail this is the end of him Jesus steps out of the grave and declares death has no hold on me and the plans of God always prevail against the plans of the enemy and Luther sometime later in another castle awaiting judgment his life is this process of waiting for judgment 
Uther writes commentary on Psalm 118, and he loved this line in Psalm 118. I will not die, I will live to tell of the works of the Lord. I will not die, I will live to tell of the works of the Lord. Luther says that his life is in the hands of God and he will not die one day too early. And every time the enemy thinks he has Luther by the tail, this is an opportunity for him to proclaim the goodness of God. Every time the enemy moves against him, it may be that God intends to use this moment to give Luther the opportunity to proclaim the works of the Lord. Now, Luther wasn't saying that I'll never die as a martyr, but he was saying I will not die as a martyr until God is good and ready for me to do so. The world thinks Paul is out of business, chained up, but Paul is sure, confident, convicted that God, even now, even in this darkness, God is using him. And so Paul cites three examples of how God is using the imprisonment for the advancement of the gospel. First, everybody say first. First, Paul says the whole imperial guard has heard the good news of Jesus. Now, of course, Paul has created enough of a stir in the Roman Empire that everyone has heard of his message and this crazy man who's preaching that there was a man who rose from the dead. But now the guards are forced to face the man who has preached it. They're forced to hear the message from the horse's mouth, to look into the eyes of a man who is clearly not insane, but actually rather intelligent. I have read historians and philosophers who are not Christians who have read Paul's work and says there is no doubt that he is the most brilliant philosopher of his day. Historians and philosophers who don't believe Paul's message say he was brilliant. Can you imagine a man preaching, stirring up the whole city, and everyone says, oh, he's a crazy lunatic, and then you sit down with the man, and the man is incredibly intelligent, kind, gentle. The guards now have to look into the eyes of the man who's stirring up the city. They can no longer ascribe to the idea that he's just a heretic, a lunatic. But no, he's brilliant and seems to be honest. They have to listen to his singing. We know that Paul likes to sing in prison. They have to listen to his praising, his preaching. Listen for a second. Paul is stuck with the imperial guard. There's no doubt about that. Paul is chained to the imperial guard. The imperial guard is also chained to Paul. And there's a perspective there that we would do well to grab. How many times do we gripe about our jobs? I'm so sick and tired of being stuck working with this people. Well, the opposite truth is also true. They're also stuck working with you. And maybe God is causing them to continue being stuck working with you because he actually wants you to be on the offensive. I'm stuck going to meal after meal with my gossiping sister. She's also stuck with you. And maybe you're not supposed to live life on this defensive all the time, but maybe you're supposed to recognize that from heaven's perspective, you might be the one who's on the offensive. God might be placing you in situations where you could say, all of hell is attacking me. Or God could be saying, I know I'm actually putting you there to attack hell. Yes, the guards. Yes, Paul is stuck in prison. And yes, Paul is stuck to the guards, but the prison, the prison guards are also stuck to him. They have no choice but to listen to what he has to say. 
Day and night, they have to listen to his singing, to his teaching, hear his ideas and his philosophy. They are bombarded with the words of an absolutely brilliant man. And it's their job. They will be murdered if they walk out. It is their job to listen to him. Paul could say on one hand, oh, hell has got me now. I'm stuck in jail. But rather he says, oh, I've got hell now. They're stuck with me. Paul says, I'm exposed to a whole new people group. People who would never come to hear me preach now are forced to. With the enemy meant for evil, God is using for good to bring his kingdom. Second, Paul says, the brothers are much more bold in their own preaching. Now, this is a phenomenon that we're actually really familiar with. When one man stands with a backbone and stands up to face the consequences for his faith and his convictions, it's not long before many follow. We call this like being a forerunner. As the believers watch Paul's life, they see Paul preach faithfully. They see Paul not quit even after he's beaten time and time again, shipwrecked and hungry. And the man's still preaching. The man's still believing. He's got real faith. He hasn't quit yet. As they watch the faithfulness of Paul, there's something in them that gets stirred up. They see an example and they follow. And so Paul says, yes, I'm in prison, but it's actually this really funny phenomenon. Everyone else is preaching with more boldness now. Rather than seeing the fact that I went to jail for my testimony to Jesus and quitting, they've seen me go to jail and they've stood up and said, no, I'll go to jail too because Jesus has been that good. Paul says they haven't slowed down. They've sped up. God is actually using my life as fuel to the fire of other gospel preachers. It's beautiful. God is using me. All I have to do is not quit. All I have to do is not gripe and complain. They see me standing strong and they keep preaching. I'm the fuel now. In that sense, Paul says that my faithfulness in prison is a seed that is flourishing in the city as people stand up and preach boldly. And third, Paul says that there are now some who preach the gospel out of a spirit of envy. It's a bit of a challenge to understand fully what Paul means by this. Um, some scholars suggest that what Paul is saying that is that, that people who don't like him are now talking more about him. And by consequence of talking about him, they're sharing the gospel message with one another. I think that probably happened and that's probably true. But the statement seems to, seems to me to be that, that now that Paul, this chief preacher and missionary and apostle, is in prison, there are other people who see that there is an open market to Christian preaching. His, he's been snatched from his pulpit, if you will, and there are crowds that are used to someone teaching and preaching. The great man of God has been captured and there is now a market to be held. Paul says that they do it out of selfish ambition. And every leader in the church is tempted with selfish ambition. There's always the temptation to preach Harder to sing better with hopes that someone will see you and pat you on the back and elevate you. Every, every leader in the church is tempted with self-ambition. And it takes a daily dying to self to say, I do not live for attaboys. I live to honor Jesus. But Paul says there are some here, they preach for selfish ambition. They're living for the attaboy. They're hoping to have some kind of ministry created out of this moment. They're taking the opportunity of my imprisonment. And men everywhere in every generation have used religion as a means of self-promotion. But Paul's response to this is this. He says, 
Yes, there are some men who preach out of selfish ambition. At least somebody's preaching. Paul says what's funny is that some men are standing up to preach with hopes of wooing the crowd. And it really doesn't matter to me because the gospel is still being proclaimed. Paul is saying, I am not concerned with me losing my public ministry or losing my influence. My sole concern is that the good news of Christ Jesus, that he died a substitutionary death and rose on the third day to wash the sins of the world. My only concern is that that message is proclaimed and God will use even the selfish ambition of these men to cause that message to be spread throughout all of the city. And I don't care. Just let the message be proclaimed. I don't care. Just let the message be proclaimed. Now, God has not improved the quality of Paul's life. Paul would be much happier out of these chains. God has not delivered Paul from this less than pleasant situation, at least not yet. Paul has mentioned that he is at times hungry. That's why the he's writing to the Philippian church because they sent him food. Praise God. How many want some food every now and then? Paul is uncomfortable, sure. He misses his friends. We know that. But Paul says that although I'm not comfortable, I am fruitful. And God has not promised Paul that he would always be comfortable. But God has promised to use him, to pour the Holy Spirit out on his life. And so Paul, the chained apostle, is not depressed in this moment, but he is fulfilled, fully satisfied, pleased, because even as this traveling evangelist is in chains, God is still using his life. He's sitting still, and yet the message is still spreading. When the enemy thought he would slow Paul down, God sped Paul up. Now, Paul could have quit. He could have embraced a victim's mindset. I've done that a time or two. He could have settled into his depression. Yep, didn't it? Paul could have written to the Philippians about his discouragement, fears, and feelings of failure. But rather, he stands strong, lives in joy, and celebrates life in Jesus. It's my goal today, quickly... To encourage you that when it seems that hell is throwing everything your way. That if you would stand strong, live in joy. You may eventually realize that even as hell assaults you, heaven is using you to bring the kingdom of God in the earth. Now I'm not saying that God will deliver you from every trial. God doesn't deliver Paul from every trial. But he uses Paul in every trial. And when you lose a loved one unexpectedly and you walk through that pain with confidence and joy in the goodness of God, God may not deliver you from the agony of losing the one you love so deeply, but he will use you in that moment of darkness if you'll stand strong, faithful and proclaim his goodness. And when you've lost a contract and then your business seems to be turning upside down, I'm not promising you that God will always fix every problem, but he will use you in the midst of every problem to proclaim his faithfulness and his goodness. And listen to me for a moment. And that is what you really desire. What you as a born again believer really want is not comfort. I promise you go on vacation for two weeks and watch how bored you are. You will get sick and tired of naps. You do not hunger and thirst for naps. I promise you. 
what you hunger and thirst for is to really be used for the sake of the gospel. What, what the, the deepest place in you, if you would self-reflect long enough, the deepest place in you will say, I will be uncomfortable, God, if you will use me. I am willing to walk through pain and darkness if you will use me to bring the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. The deepest place of you wants to be used for the gospel of Jesus. You want the face of the earth to be changed. It's a shame that we've made the gospel so much about comfort because it's not even really what you want. You want to be used. You want to be anointed. You want to see the sick healed. You want to see the demonically oppressed delivered. You want to see the hungry, those who are starving every day fed. You want to see needs met. And you want to see broken, depressed people filled with joy as they realize that their sins have been washed by the perfect, priceless, precious blood of the Lamb of God. That's what you really want. Paul says, I will sit in prison and I will endure the hunger and I will endure the darkness as long as God will use me. He may not deliver you from the trial quite as fast as you would like, but he will use you in the trial. He will use you in it. And when you pray the Lord's Prayer and you pray, not my will, but yours be done, you may be actually praying with Paul. I'll stay in prison, God. I don't like it, but if you'll use me here, I'll stay. You may be praying, God, bring the storms, bring the the darkness, bring the assault from the enemy. Whatever I've got to walk through, that's okay as long as Jesus' name is proclaimed in power. So quickly, how do we embrace the heart posture of Paul? What do we have to understand to grasp, to foster this kind of confidence in the purposes of God? First, you have to rest in the goodness of God towards you. Even when circumstances scream at you, you are finished. You have to be insightful enough to realize that even when it feels like hell is assaulting you, God is still standing with you. And the promises of God are not abandoned just because the enemy attacks you for a moment. God does not quit on His promise to use you just because you've had to walk through a dark season. He promises to walk with you through the dark season and to make your wilderness seasons flow with river of life. And Paul could have thought the thoughts of hell. And by thinking the thoughts of hell, Paul would have thought, I'm finished, I'm done, I'm in chains, I'll never travel, never travel again, no one will hear my gospel message. The thoughts of hell were, this is over. But rather than thinking the thoughts of hell, Paul gets the perspective of heaven, and he realizes that from heaven's perspective, even in this moment, he's being used. And what the enemy was trying to do was intimidate, but what God was trying to do is force some guards to have to listen to what he had to say. Sometimes the difference between living on the defensive and always thinking, oh, I'm going through a great attack of hell and living on the offensive and thinking God is using me, man, is all in whether or not you have heaven's perspective. So many times in our darkest season, we think the thoughts of hell and proclaim the purposes of hell. I'm finished. 
when it may be in that season that God has set you up to really be used. And if you would learn to think the thoughts of heaven to gain the perspective of Christ, you may realize that no, this is an opportunity to really proclaim the goodness of God. One of my... um. One of, one of my mentors and a man that I love with all my heart so deeply um, recently lost a loved one. And in a season where they, they've done this, his family has done this a few times, he, um, he lost someone very close to him and they asked him to preach the funeral. And I, I, in defense of him, I, my immediate response is like, man, let the man grieve. Let the man mourn. Don't make him preach the funeral of every person that's close to him. But every time there's something in him that's like uber excited to preach the gospel of Jesus to his family. And he's like, yes, I'm broken. And yes, this season is dark. But this is also an opportunity to look everyone in the face and to say heaven and hell is real. And the blood of Jesus would gladly wash you of your sin if you'd repent. And I don't always have his perspective, but his perspective is like, no, every season sacrifice offered to God is a season of fruitfulness. Be easy to say of Paul, I've been defeated, but rather Paul says he's still my faithful father who works all things together for my good. And sometimes you feel lonely and you feel abandoned and you have seasons of feeling insecure, like nobody cares and nobody wants to be around you. And you could partner with the thoughts of hell and say, this is a season of great loneliness. Or you could get some heavenly perspective and think, maybe God is actually setting me up for a season of real prayer. I'm alone or I'm alone with God. It could be that you feel lonely, but God is actually posturing you to a place of intercession because God is about ready to bring some breakthrough to your family. And God wants to partner with you through intercessory prayer to bring breakthrough. And you could say, oh, the enemy's got me. Or you could say, God, what are you doing? Because that's really what this comes down to. Is Paul has thought long enough to ask the question in his imprisonment, God, what are you doing through this imprisonment? And in your seasons of loneliness, think, God, what are you doing in this season? I know hell has not got me by the tails now. And I think that sometimes I'm talking to myself when I feel like I'm going through spiritual warfare, I am guilty as charged of always saying, I feel cloudy, I feel muggy, I've texted many of you and said, pray for me, I feel assaulted in my mind. But as I thought this week, I thought, maybe it's not that I'm always being assaulted by the enemy, but maybe it's that in my prayer life, God is actually pushing me to assault hell, and I feel attacked because I'm actually the attacker. Like, maybe in this season where I feel totally foggy and I'm screaming, God, make it stop, maybe God is actually using me me to break strongholds off of my community and maybe hell is actually on the retreat in these moments of brokenness and maybe the only difference is my perspective and so maybe as we approach seasons of fogginess and cloudiness and again guilty as charged I'm the king of it maybe I need to learn to approach it from the perspective and say God I realize that I'm I'm engaging in some spiritual warfare what devil am I taking down today 
Give me a spirit of fervency to intercede and to pray. And God, I realize that I'm going through something, but I know you're using me. And, and when I ask people to pray for me, I'm not just asking, pray that this would stop. But I'm asking, pray with me that this devil would break. Because God's getting ready to do something in my life or in the life of somebody I love or in my community. Maybe God is actually the one on the offense. Maybe I need to learn to stand in my season of turmoil with Paul and declare God is using me. Second, you have to refuse self-promotion. So first, Paul says God is good. He's good in every season. Even when it looks dark, God is using me. He's that good. He is that good that even the darkness is not dark to him. He is that good that even in chains, he will make me fruitful. God is that good. Somebody say that good. That good. The second is Paul refuses self-promotion. His life is not about him being seen and heard by more people. Paul's okay with sitting in jail as long as the gospel is proclaimed. His life is about the gospel, not about him being seen and heard. If your life is always in your ministry is about you being seen or heard, every time you go through something, you think, oh, I'm finished. Every time you have a season of trial, you think, why am I not excelling and thriving? If your life is just about you, you'll think anytime you struggle that everything is done. But when your life is about the gospel, you'll think, oh, I'm going through something. But somehow God's using this in in the grander scheme of things. When life's not all about you, you're able to zoom out and see the big picture. And and, and, and maybe you didn't know this, but, but the gospel's actually about the big picture. And sometimes you need to live holy because God, there are, there are actually people watching you. Sometimes you need to resist temptation. You think, oh, I can live in a little sin. But, but maybe there are kids and grandkids watching you. Maybe your life is bigger than you. And maybe you're going through turmoil. Maybe you're Job and you feel totally abandoned. But it could be that people are watching your faithfulness, will be inspired by your faithfulness. It could be that one day your grandkids will say, my grandmother walked through sickness, believed that she would be healed and went down saying that God was good. And therefore, I'm going to walk through sickness, believe that God is good, pray for healing. Maybe God is actually using your life as a testimony and it's bigger than you, man. But if you make it all about you, you will quit. Paul says it's not all about me. It's good. He refuses self-promotion. And that leads to the final point. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come. The final point is this. That in order to embrace the posture of Paul, you at some point in your life are going to have to embrace surrender. Paul lives surrendered, open-handed. Does Paul want to be in prison today? No. Does God want Paul to be in prison today? Apparently. He's in prison today. There's been a time or two where Paul was in prison and God just bust the bonds off and let him out. Paul does not view himself as completely autonomous of his own life. He says in Romans 12, 2, that we ought to be living sacrifices. That means like a, a living offering to the Lord, which says, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I belong to you. It's all about you, Jesus. It's not about me. Am I comfortable? No. But if you're being glorified, praise. Paul lived surrendered. And and this may be one of the deepest gospel truths that would totally change your life if you would ever grasp it. You are not in control of your life. 
Your life is not about you. You are not the maker of your own dreams and plans. God has ordained your steps. He has called you and gifted you and anointed you to fulfill His task, not your task. And so at times, your dreams and your plans don't seem to be coming to pass. Look, it's okay. Because it's not about your dreams and your plans. It's about His dreams for you. And surrender says, God, I don't like this, but if you are pleased with it, march on. Surrender says it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all for you. My life is for you. And it's these truths that Paul embraces that cause him to realize that in one hand, this looks like hell is victorious, but on the other hand, there are thousands of people that are now hearing the gospel and all he has to do is sit his butt in jail and not quit. And Sometimes you feel lonely and you feel broken and you feel like heaven is falling down on you and nothing you pray is coming to pass. And I think that sometimes when we get heaven's perspective, we realize all we got to do is just, just stand. Proclaim the goodness of God. We need to start praying things like God... What are you trying to do in this season? What are you trying to accomplish in me and through me? I don't need comfort, God. I need to be used. Comfort does not satisfy the deep craving of my heart. What satisfies the deep craving of my heart is knowing that I am walking with you and partnering with you and seeing the gospel preached through the ends of the earth. If you embrace these truths, you may find that even your valleys are places of great fruitfulness. Not happiness, per se, but fruitfulness. You may find that at times when you used to say, oh, I'm in the wilderness right now, you may begin to say, oh, I'm taking down some devils right now. God is showing me some things. Yes, I'm uncomfortable, but I really feel like God is using me in my prayer life. Paul could have moped. Luther could have moped. But ultimately, Paul settled himself and trusted God to redeem even the darkest places of his life. Luther is locked in his high tower, alone, bored. Can you imagine that man being bored with all of his humor? And finally, he thinks, ah, let's translate the New Testament. Maybe that's what God's doing. Maybe God has made me sit down for a while because he wants me to do this. Maybe I have lived too busy. When it seemed he was down for the count, God uses him to release the word of God to thousands, hundreds of thousands. This morning, it's my prayer that you would fall in love not only with the doctrine of Paul, the theology of Paul, but the heart of Paul. It's my prayer that over the next 5,000 weeks, however many weeks, I don't know, you would begin to become enamored with the person of Paul, the person who sits in jail and rather than moping says, no, these guys have to listen to me. Rather than moping has enough heavenly perspective to say, God uses me every day. And all of life is really about him. In my highs, he's good. And in my lows, he's good. 
and to realize that it's not just about my emotional comfort or happiness. It's about being used for the glory of Jesus, being caught up in the story of broken, sinful, condemned people coming alive in Jesus, being totally washed, being born again, being born to new desires, new hopes and dreams, to see a drunken alcoholic who has walked out on their kids come to know Jesus, be delivered, and to see entire family patterns flipped on their heads because that is what Jesus does. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.